0: Iraq War Inquiry, claims now of unfair political pressure on Sir John Chilcott. Also the Battle of Britain's hardest day remembered 75 years on.
1: We had a job to do with so many of them, you see. They'd got lots of guns on, but they soon blew the sump away my aircraft flames appeared.
0: And the US Army prepares for a landmark graduation. There are claims of unfair political pressure being applied to the team working on the Iraq Inquiry, with one source describing it as a hatchet job families of those killed in Iraq have threatened legal action over the delay in releasing the Inquiry's findings. The Defence Secretary, Michael Fallon, has said the report has been delayed long enough. Well, it is now more than six years since Sir John Shilcott was appointed to head the Inquiry, the public's hearings themselves starting in November 2009. Well, political correspondent of The Independent, James Cusick, has written today about concerns being raised from inside the Inquiry team. He joins us now. James, welcome to the programme. What have your sources been telling you?
1: Well, basically, uh, looking behind the, the delays, I mean, what we've seen in the press over the past couple of weeks is some fairly strong criticism of all members of uh, the Iraq Inquiry team and uh, those who I, I spoke to uh, around the inquiry, close to the inquiry, basically said that the, that the criticisms of them effectively being described as kind of almost a load of bumbling incompetence and amateurs. Um, there's almost a coordinated attempt to discredit the findings before they've, they've arrived. What's actually happened is they're they being politically rushed into uh, delivering a report which uh, sources close to the inquiry have told me will effectively only end um, in an incomplete uh, document uh, rather than the comprehensive one that they want to see and that uh there's reasoning behind uh, the delays. There's, there's a process where everybody criticised has to be given the opportunity. Now, the first public hearings, Paula, were in, what, 2009. It's now five years down the line. Lots of material, documentary material, has been uncovered since then. And lots of the criticism are being put to people hearing it for the first time. So the delays are long. Uh, the, inquiry, the inquiry sources say the delay is justified. They will deliver a decent report. And that these smears and discret- discretation are Not, not valid.
0: When will they deliver that decent report? How far off publication are they? Well, I
1: think regardless of the pressures from Downing Street, the Cabinet Office, even the families of those killed in Iraq and others, that the complexities and, if you like, the attempted comprehensiveness of this inquiry report means it's now unlikely to be, I think, 2016 before we have a formal, formal publication date.
0: What about the forces at work here? Are politicians playing a game with this inquiry, <laughs> pushing it in this way?
1: Yeah, well, I think politicians have been playing games with Chilcot since it was first announced in 2009. I think, if, if you can cast your memory back, Gordon Brown was then Prime Minister. I, some see that he wanted to, if you like, distance himself from Tony Blair's uh, and, uh, government and, and Iraq, which had helped, if you like, destroy Blair's reputation at the time. But having set Sir so John this fairly mammoth task of looking at everything related to Iraq and connected to Decisions inside that government, intelligence institutions, everything. The Brown administration then effectively closed its doors to the file that the inquiry had asked for. Now, so public hearings took place. Panel looked at being a bit questions connected to documents and coalition government followed brown almost in america were playing similar games because they were they were questioning who actually owned these documents was at the white house the state department so i think when the documents did arrive and criticisms were formed of key individuals i think it come as a shock to many about how critical they would have been. and that is the factor behind the years of delay not really anything else i think games politicians play whitehall and Westminster play games all the time, don't they?
0: But looking at those two entities, you you mentioned there in your answer that the politicians keep changing, the front of house keeps changing, if you like, but the the machine, the Whitehall machine, behind doesn't. It remains the same. Is it figures within Whitehall that wants to delay the publication?
1: Well, I think... Let me just put it this way, um, maybe delay was once seen as an ideal strategy, you know, to the, the classic uh, Whitehall strategy of keep it going and when it eventually arrives no one will care that much. But I think that's now changed, I think delay isn't the answer, that isn't going to work. So I think that those who are worried about the content of this report... now. You know, the thing hasn't been published, but what has been sent out is almost, in some key instances, hundreds of pages of criticism. Those individuals have not been sent the findings of the report itself. They've been sent their own criticisms, uh, criticisms of themselves. Now, their lawyers have now seen this, and that means across government departments, there are a lot of lawyers who know the extent of the criticism that this report is going to contain. So I think that some are worried about uh as as I said you know the the, the stuff that's going to happen now. So it's uh is, is, is delay a decent tactic or do they just actually turn around and attack the very nature the very institution of the report itself and that appears to be what's happening and I think that is behind if you like some of the fight back from those close to the inquiry.
0: Is delay important or is getting the facts absolutely right the most important James for the moment hang on Sure. Uh, with us this week on SITREP of course as always our defence analyst Christopher Lee and joining us from the University of Bradford is Paul Rogers where he's Professor of Peace Studies. Christopher if I can ask you first, is there a plot against Chilcot?
2: No, I don't think it's a plot against Chilcot per se. Um, whats What we've heard and what is absolutely true, the thing has gone on for far longer than not so much it should have done, but for how long was expected. There wasn't a fixed time possible on this inquiry. This is not a, a parliamentary select committee when they can take, say, couple of dozen uh, pieces of evidence and then publish their report and then government makes a response. This is much bigger than that. There are also certain things that people have got to understand. For example, this this policy of saying, right, we will get in touch with somebody who's criticised and you can respond. This is a thing based on the fact that when there was an inquiry against somebody called Maxwell, Robert Maxwell, uh, it became the Maxwell system to do this. But there's no legal requirement to do it. Now, what uh, one one factor that was suggested to, uh, uh, to John Chilcott and also to one of the other members of, of the committee um, was to give people a time limit to say, look, we are going to um, sort of publish uh, the stuff that you was said about you. You've got three months to come back. And at the end of three months, if you don't take in that opportunity or if you don't give good reason why we shouldn't go ahead then we'll make an assumption that you will want to make all your responses afterwards it's a very difficult thing to do because you're supposed to do it with everybody but that was the idea there is something else here and that is the three things that people wanted to know one, Blair, what was his part in it Two was the legality of it, the legality of the war itself. And the third, and this is one of the tricky things, it was the role played by Sir John Scarlett, or now Sir John, Sir John Scarlett, who was the chairman of the Joint Intelligence Committee, who went on to become uh, the, uh, the controller of MI6 as a result of it. And there behind there is another story, um, and James sort of touched on it in a, in a way. The Americans and the British intelligence services um, they don't trust each other. The Americans, in particular, don't trust the British. And if Chilcot started ta- getting too much evidence from the Americans on intelligence, that could be damaging.
0: Let's talk to Paul Rogers then about this. Uh, the Independent today, Paul, calling this a blockbuster in terms of information when it comes out, leaving many Whitehall mandarins' careers in tatters. Just how important is it, in spite of that, to the British forces serving now, perhaps listening to this? For this inquiry to get the facts right, to get the basis for going to war right...
3: Well, I think this is why the report actually is going to be far more interesting and relevant than people expected. It's because of what has happened since. We've had another disastrous military intervention in Libya, and we now have an extraordinarily difficult situation in Syria and Iraq uh, with British uh, air power back in Iraq, a possibility of special forces, suspicion they're already there. So although it's of historic interest, it's actually a contemporary concern as well. So I think this is one of the reasons why Chilcot is going to be received with much greater tension than you otherwise would have expected. But as you say, it looks like it's going to be far more critical than people expected, given the length of time that there's been with people allowed to respond. So I think for all those different reasons, this is going to be quite a remarkable report compared with the many others of recent years.
0: Paul, thank you. James Cusick still listening. Uh, James... You were talking to the team, as we said earlier on, the sources inside the Chilcot inquiry. How are they looking at that legal threat from families?
1: Well, the most important thing, Paula, is I'm, you know, not a spokesman for the inquiry. You know, I'm a political journalist, but I would ask the families what exactly they want to ha- they want to happen in 2015, not what they wanted to happen when this process first began in 2009. Um, if the report is fast tracked, I think it will inevitably be branded as incomplete or. Uh, the scale of the holes and there will be holes will be exaggerated, in other words, it won 't be seen as the whole story, and it will not have the impact of a full comprehensive report now, as a journalist i 'm aware of my you know distant role of this you know, and I come if you like, without the pain felt by so many families on this subject, but I want their support to be a blockbuster and if institutions need shaken then I want them shaken and I'm prepared to wait and prepared to be patient most important thing we are not looking at three months of what happened in Iraq the remit of the Chilcot inquiry is 2001 2009 and it's exactly what your last guest said their lessons are supposed to be learned that's actually a big part of this report
0: James Cusick and Paul Rogers thank you Still to come, a critical day in the Battle of Britain remembered.
2: So few people just putting in all the effort that they possibly had to defend this little island.
0: Further clashes have been reported in eastern Ukraine, with several soldiers killed, according to the Kiev government. And that's led to further concerns. that The ceasefire is about to crumble further. Well, over the last few months, a number of NATO exercises have been taking place in the region. Russia too has been exercising its forces, as we know. Some analysts describing relations between Moscow and the West at present as like a new Cold War. Well, joining us on the line from Canada is Dr. Megan Fitzpatrick, a graduate of of the Department of War Studies at King's College, London, who studied Cold War relations. Megan, welcome to the programme. How do you view current Russia-West relations, then? Is it the new Cold War?
4: Uh, no. I think to, to characterise the present tensions between Russia and the West as a, as a new Cold War would be a mistake. There are certainly parallels between the past and the current situation. Um, moreover, you can easily begin to see similarities between now, and other major historical events of the 20th century. However, the new Cold War narrative is somewhat misleading, and it really doesn't take into account how much the world has changed since 1991. We're no longer living in a bipolar world dominated by two very evenly matched superpowers who are on the brink of nuclear uh, confrontation. Today, security threats can come from a multiplicity of players, so both state and non-state actors. And the introduction of technology has also really radically altered how those in defense conduct their business. Moreover, Europe has changed with the introduction and the expansion of the European Union. And finally, uh, contemporary Russia simply isn't the Soviet Union. Russian political and military thinking has really evolved over the past few decades, and we need to take account of that fact. So while history can be a very useful tool in helping us to contextualize our problems, In this case, I think it can also distract us from properly understanding the current dilemma.
0: So in terms of looking at all these latest military exercises that have been going on, are they just there to justify military spending or is this posturing as well?
4: Right. Well, the present military exercises that are going on this month certainly do a very good job at underlining the value of continued investment in the military. However, I don't think that this is posturing purely for the sake of justifying military might. All of the countries concerns are facing very real and challenging threats to their security, so whether we're talking about Russia or domestic terrorism or one of many other issues, there's also a need to be prepared to work in close cooperation with key allies, and after all, the UK rarely works alone anymore. And these exercises are yet another opportunity to strengthen those long-term relationships.
0: But what about the perceived sabre-rattling from Vladimir Putin uh, and this fiery rhetoric that he espouses regularly? What are we to make of that?
4: Sure. I think, well, historically, uh, Russian politicians do use make use of fiery rhetoric, and Putin is, uh, is no exception to that rule. Of course, there's a need to to maintain a level of preparedness for the events or whatever events may come in the future. However, to, to perceive the, the sabre rattling as, uh, as a sign of things to come is, is, might be a mistake. It's good to
0: talk to you. Dr. Megan Fitzpatrick, thanks for joining us.
4: Thanks very much.
0: Now, this week marks 75 years since a pivotal day in the Battle of Britain. The so-called hardest day was remembered with a special flight of spitfires and hurricanes from Biggin Hill in Kent. Here, with some of the memories and sounds from that day, is Tim Cooper.
3: Well, it's a very long time since I had anything to do with... Spitfires, but it's very uh, exciting to see so many restored and all in one place and all flying together. Squadron leader Rosser, Spitfire pilot. I mean, the Hurricane is a very good aeroplane, but the Spitfires got it every time. Well, apart from anything else, it had much more stretch in it, and it's a wonderful aeroplane to fly
2: I flew hurricanes, yes, and then I took over a bit far later. Tony Pickering, Battle of Britain pilot. I did get shot down once, yes, by bombers. Bombers shot me down. Rotten old so-and-so. They got lots of guns on board and
1: put the guns on you and they soon blew the sump away my aircraft. The sump of my aircraft
5: went. Flames appeared. And as soon as you see flames, dear, you don't stay on board the aircraft. Over the side you go.
1: And it was the Luftwaffe coming over here to soften up, to take out our air force, so there was no air defence when the German armies came across the channel. Kent MP, Colonel Bob Stewart. But instead, they found there was air defence, and that air defence actually managed to hold them off, and if they had not held off the Luftwaffe in the Battle of Britain, it may well be a very different Britain we're in today. Thank God, and thank you for all they did.
2: Real pieces of history and they need to be treated very, very gently by by those that fly and operate them. Managing Director of Biggin Hill, Will Curtis. We don't want them to become museum pieces covered in dust. We want to see them flying, we want to see them operating in the air.
0: Well, Tim Cooper there, speaking to veterans of the Battle of Britain on Tuesday during a special day at Biggin Hill, enjoyed and remembered by all. But just how important is it to keep remembering these military anniversaries? Does it teach us anything about modern conflicts? Uh, Megan Fitzpatrick saying just now it was all about contextualising the conflicts and indeed drawing perspective from those experiences. Well, Christopher Lee is still with us, as is Paul Rogers, Professor of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford. Chris, first to you, why do we keep marking these anniversaries? How important is it?
2: Well, we keep marking the anniversaries because we won the war, quite frankly. I mean, I'm not too sure how many we would sort of mark if we hadn't won the war against uh, Nazi Germany. So it's
0: vain, is it? Vanity?
2: No, it's not vanity. It's the fact. You just won. I mean, you go through, you know, go through 2,000 years of British history, and when you won, you had a celebration. You remember the date that you won. You didn't remember. I mean, we even turn uh, defeat into a victory. A per- perfect example uh, was Dunkirk. But the the other thing side of it, there is another important side of it. When people go to the uh, anniversaries or the commemorations. And we can take this on a grand scale. For example, um, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, uh, victory over Japan, or anything else like that on that grand international scale. It's interesting to watch the people who go, in terms of the politicians who go, Um, maybe chiefs of staff, but really politicians who get something out of it Just by being there together and making remarks and talking to each other, um, I'm not sure you could make a list of those things that they get something out of it, but the observer gets more than they do out of saying, oh, yes, I remember the date of Agincourt.
0: Paul Rogers, we celebrate these military anniversaries because we've won wars, but can't we learn more from the ones we lost?
3: Well, we don't t- tend to talk about the ones we lose. I mean, we, we, we say very little about, say, the, the Suez Crisis. In fact, there's a slightly cynical view that if you lose a war, you don't call it a war, you call it a crisis. And to some extent, there's truth in that. I think we're certainly seeing much greater concentration on remembering these kinds of events more broadly. They seem to come round very regularly. And I think to some extent, um, this is because we're in an extremely interesting time at the moment. The British military, particularly the British Army, is popular in the public Mind, the wars that it fights are unpopular, and I think to some extent, uh, I rather suspect that the Ministry of Defence is keen to promote these memories because it focuses on the ordinary people rather than the wars themselves and I think we 're going to see quite a lot more of this uh, in the coming years
0: but Paul, are we the veterans of these campaigns may not be with us for much longer let 's face facts. Do you think that 's going to mark a change in attitudes?
3: It might do, but I think you may well find that it'll be the Korean War which is then remembered, Uh, then will be a period in which, in a sense, we may be coming up to the centenaries of the Second World War. So I think, in a sense, this is something which is continuing, and it's part of a national move, which is very difficult to put a finger on, in which you actually remember these things more than in the past. And I think, as I say, there's, to some extent, an agenda behind this on the part of the Ministry of Defence, uh, because it is a reminder of the fact that, as I say, the soldiers and the other service people are popular... But the wars that we've fought in recent years have been anything but popular, and that takes us back again to Chilcot, of course.
0: Paul and Chris, for the moment, thanks. Stay with us. Because the Foreign Secretary, Philip Hammond, has said desperate migrants attempting to access the UK are putting strain on the state's security services and leaving the country, in his words, unable to defend itself. Paul Rogers, if I can ask you... Is this helpful rhetoric? Is this the sort of political meddling we need to dampen down the sensitivities here, or is this downright unhelpful?
3: I'll be blunt on this. I think it's very unhelpful. Um, We face relatively small problems compared with other European countries. About 1% of migrants trying to get into Europe actually try and get as far as Calais. Other countries have a far greater problem. Uh, The Italians, for example, the Greeks, and Greece faces many economic problems. But the other issue here is that what we're seeing now... Uh, could be a foretaste of something far more difficult if we, st- if we get the widening economic problems and, of course, climate change kicking in. We will be dealing with um, a desperation of people to move, almost an order of magnitude of what we now face. There is a huge need for Europe to work together on this, and I think one also has to contend that the current situation has been much made much worse, both by what has happened in Syria and what happened in Libya, Libya. But in terms of seeing this as, you know, a security threat to the country, bluntly, I think that's over the top.
0: Christopher Lee, is Britain and America uh, responsible? Are they the architects of this current migrant crisis?
3: Well, it
2: depends whose side you're on. Um, but if you, for example, uh, take two sides of it. One is because if you intervene in another country and you don't fix the problem that you were intervening about, and the classic example is is, is Libya, then you have to claim some responsibility or you have to take some responsibility. There's another aspect to it, Uh, and that is if you consider where the, uh, say, migrants come from and whether they're emigres or or migrants or economic migrants or or political uh, migrants, and you haven't fixed the problem in that country when you said you could, and going back to what you were talking about earlier about the Cold War, et cetera, one positive thing uh, that people used to talk about the Cold War is you could keep stability in, in the world in some way. One thing you can see now, for example, America and Russia cannot fix some of the problems we've got in the world in spite of all the sort of what they've got in terms of military might as well as, uh, as soft diplomacy. The important thing is to start putting the, in perspective what is causing... The migration. And when you start thinking about it, at the moment there are 60 million, 60 million displaced persons on the move in this world. Uh, that's same population as the United that's Kingdom. That's a whole country. Same population as the United Kingdom, but 60 million people on the move. We don't have a way of, of, of solving it.
0: Chris and Paul, thank you. Now on Friday, two American women will become the first to join what until now has been an all-male military club. They'll graduate from the gruelling training programme of the elite US Army Rangers. But here's the catch. They won't be able to serve with the Special Operations Unit as women are banned. Kate Fisher reports from Washington.
5: (laughs) The first two female American Rangers each carry a man on their back as they take part in one of the obstacle courses, which form part of this gruelling 61-day training course. But despite their proven success, these women are still not allowed to fight on the front line. Women are banned from combat roles in the U.S. military, But that could be about to change. By the end of this year, the armed services must have cleared a path to eliminate all gender restrictions or have given the defence secretary strong evidence-based reasons why women can't do the job. Elspeth Cameron Ritchie, a former soldier who's just published a book about the challenges facing female troops, says that women are capable of the job, but better provision must be made for them. They have menstrual cycles. They can get yeast infections and urinary tract infections. And it's really important that they are able to find places to stay clean. Even today, women are wearing diapers because there is not a place for them to safely urinate. If you're in Afghanistan, you can't just go behind a bush because you may be shot But among the visitors to the Women's Military Memorial at Arlington National Cemetery, not everybody
4: agreed with her. God created women different from men. You know, there's sanitary issues, there's soldiers' mindsets, you know, men look at a woman and they think of their mom, their sister, their daughter, so they have that natural instinct to protect them, and sometimes that could put them in harm's way.
0: I mean, physical
2: differences between men and women, that's obviously an issue, but I think as long as they're able to meet the requirements, it
3: should be fine.
5: Speaking last week as he prepared to leave his job as the U.S. Army's top officer, General Ray Odierno gave the impression that the Army could be ready to lift the ban.
1: We have really collected some significant analysis. We've done really incredible studies over the last two years. It is about can they meet the standard or not, and if they can, uh, we lean towards the fact it would probably be good if we allowed them to serve. The feedback I've gotten with these women is how incredibly prepared they are They've impressed all that they've come in contact with. They are clearly motivated, and, and frankly, uh, that's what we want out of our soldiers.
5: General Odierno also said the Army would be running another co-ed ranger school course starting in November, where more women will be trying to follow in the footsteps of the first two female rangers in the history of the U.S. Army. Kate Fisher for SITREP in the United States.
0: So, Kate Fisher reporting there from Washington. Chris, Paul, you're both still here listening. Chris, first of all, you... It's no new thing, is it, women on the front line?
2: Yeah, it's a question whether you fight, find yourself on the front line or whether you, you, you actually train and become a member of, let's say, an infantry battalion or uh, or, or whatever it is that puts uh, that, 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 that you there. Uh, about four metres, four metres from this studio, is a photograph... Of uh, a British officer who was killed on the front line of, uh, in Afghanistan. Now, she wasn't trained as an infantry officer to go and do that, but that's where she was. And so she got killed. And that, in imp- the practical side of warfare, is what can happen. Uh, the Israelis, for example, we've got a big sort of image of uh, Israeli women soldiers, they're not allowed on the front line. And I think that is the difficulty. It's only the beginning of the debate. And every time we hear about, oh, it's the first woman general and it's the first woman that, I think it's pretty insulting to women that you're actually sort of picking picking them up and saying you're the first one etc.
0: Paul Rogers, is it insulting or is it just sort of a bit out of date I mean I'm drawing to mind those uh, PKK resistance fighters those those Yazadi women who are training now to fight against IS, the people who have been persecuting them and killing their mothers and children enough so much so that they're angry enough to develop their own resistance, is it out of date?
3: I think it is out of date I mean after all the 75th Ranger, Ranger Regiment, six Battalions um, it's quite large, several thousand troops. It is part of a very big expansion of U.S. special forces. The total Special Operations Command has something like 70,000 people assigned to it. That's not far short of the entire British Army. But the key thing is what Chris was saying. Essentially, the nature of warfare has changed. And, in fact, you often do not actually get front lines. So, in fact, you may well get uh, units in which men women are playing a very powerful role who are actually at great risk. And as Chris said, you saw that in Afghanistan. So I guess I think it is out of date because it doesn't factor in the way in which warfare itself is changing.
0: Christopher and Paul, thanks very much to you both and our other contributors this week. Do keep your comments coming in on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And remember, you can download the programme as a podcast. Search for BFBS SITREP and join us again next week, please. But from me, Paula Middlehurst, it's goodbye for now.
4: Sport, Sport and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS.